Jesus is dead. Jesus is dead. Imagine a world where Jesus is dead. I read those haunting words in the entry of my Lenten devotional book for Holy Saturday. Yesterday, the day between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And that was the world that Jesus' disciples were living in. Jesus, the master, teacher, and prophet, the one who had changed their lives, who spoke about the coming kingdom of God, he was dead. He'd been crucified on Friday. He'd been laid in a tomb by Joseph. And yet, he was supposed to have been the long-awaited Messiah. But he was dead. And Israel couldn't have a dead Messiah. Was it all for nothing? Surely not. He loved them so well. He healed so many. He taught so deeply. But he was dead. Imagine a world where Jesus is dead. These words shook me. Not because I can't imagine such a world, but because I can. We're surrounded by death and brokenness every day. Kids are shot and killed in schools. People of color like Alton Sterling, Jordan Edwards, and most recently Stephen Clark are shot and killed by police under very questionable circumstances. Most of us have experienced losing our loved ones, people very dear to us, to death. We can imagine death. It's around us all of the time. In fact, I think it's possible that we can imagine death so well that we, in a sense, can get stuck in Holy Saturday. Because there's so much death and brokenness around us, like a Bill Murray Groundhog's Day kind of thing. Saturday and death just keep repeating over and over and over again. Barbara Brown Taylor, in her book, Learning to Walk in the Dark, describes the difference between solar faith and lunar faith. To caricature caricature them, solar folks are the happy clappy, ain't it a great day, why are you sad, God is good all the time, kinds of people. Lunar folks wrestle with doubt and mystery, and they're uncomfortable with making confident statements about faith and God. They prefer silence to words about God. Taylor makes the case that solar faith is often the predominant expression in a lot of churches. And solar folks often look at lunar folks and think they have lesser faith. But Taylor raises the question, what if light and dark, in fact, originate from the same source? What if both approaches to faith are legitimate? What if lunar faith is needed now more than ever? It is legitimate and it is needed. I know there are a lot of lunar folks in our community. I have a good bit of lunar orientation in me. Solar folks want to jog right on past Good Friday and Holy Saturday. We're already celebrating Easter and it's Thursday. 
right? You're kind of frustrated with me right now that it's an Easter message and I'm talking about death. The, the lunar folks are like, wait a minute. Hold on a second. Let's, let's stop and sit in Good Friday and Holy Saturday. Not because we want to love death, but let's sit with it. Not because we like it, but because it's real. Because it's heavy. And we want to hold it because it's significant. We don't want to take it lightly and just explain it away with pat answers. It's the world we live in. Sometimes... However, though, I wonder if we can sit with Holy Saturday for so long and so deeply that it's, a hard, it's hard to imagine any other day but Holy Saturday. The, any other day than the brokenness and the darkness and the waiting and the turmoil that is Holy Saturday. What about you? In what ways is it easy or difficult for you to imagine a world where Jesus is dead? Please, if you've got thoughts, I would love to hear them. In what ways is it easy or difficult for you to imagine a world where Jesus is dead? I mean, just any old news is, is, is indicating the world has no hope. We're all, we're, it's all going into the toilet, and and uh, barbarians just heard the gate. Everything's going to collapse, you know, tomorrow or the day after, perhaps. So you better hunker down. And so, uh, just uh, you know, order in pizza and get your AK forty sevens or your you know survival kits because. They know God, they know Jesus, they know hope, and religion is just for those cuckoo people. Hmm. So, Jesus is dead. Hmm. He ain't risen, he ain't alive, and he ain't active. Of course, he ain't. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Thank you, John. Other thoughts? Yeah, sure. It's hard for me to imagine Jesus being dead because that would mean that. Yeah, we want to believe there's something more, something beyond that, something that redeems that. Yeah, absolutely. I think of my youngest daughter in this who his entire hope is that one day she'll see his little father. And she says, I've got to believe because I don't believe. Uh, not a serious comment, but does anybody hear music? Yes. Yes. Is it coming from up there? Um, Paul, would you? Uh, I think there's some house sound that comes down. It's like Imagine Dragons or something. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it goes with what I'm saying, but you know. <laughs> yeah, it's just on this end. I, I just thought for a while it was Megan like rocking out to her music or something, but yeah, coming from above. <laughs> 
so on the, on, the, on the Sunday morning, after Jesus died, Jesus' closest disciples are staying in this house together. Uh, probably still in a fog about what's just happened, and also a bit anxious as to whether or not um, what happened to Jesus will happen to them. Will the Jewish and Roman authorities come and do the same thing to them that they did to Jesus. I mean, which, after all, I mean, the the quickest way to stamp out a rebellion would be to find this leader's closest followers and co-leaders and to do to them the same thing that they did to their leader. So maybe they're anxious about that. And all of a sudden, there are knocks on the door. It's Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and the Apostle James's mom, Mary, along with several others. And they're out of breath. And they're shaking. We went to the tomb this morning. We prepared the spices. Uh, his body wasn't there when we came out. There were these two men. It was so bright. And they told us that Jesus wasn't there because he'd risen. Just like he said. You remember him saying that? Saying something like he was going to be raised from the dead? Then Mary Magdalene said, And then... I saw him. I thought it was the gardener. And I said, hey, do you know where the body has gone? And then we met eyes and he spoke to me and it was him. It was Jesus. Before they could say much more, Peter and John shot out of that place on a sprint to the tomb. Peter gets there and then John and then others to see what the women had seen. The stone that covered that tomb had been rolled away and there were linens Linen cloths for burial in there, but there was no body. There was no Jesus. What in the world happened? Did somebody steal Jesus' body? And did Mary really see Jesus? Or is that just the weight of grief? We just lost a very close friend. So they head back to the house to regroup. I mean, what do you do all day when the body of your executed leader goes missing? Maybe hide and hope nobody important finds you or finds out. At least a few of the disciples got out and about because later that night, Cleopas comes running in the house. Mary was right. We were on our way to Emmaus and we met this guy and he was talking about how the Bible says the Messiah will suffer and then die and be raised again. And we ate together and then we realized it was him. It was Jesus right in front of us. We got here as quick as we could to tell all of you about this news. And while they're talking about how crazy it is that something like this could happen, some are still in disbelief. There's no way that does not happen. Someone walks into the room and he says, Salam Aleikum. Peace be with you. And they know that voice. And they look over and they see... Jesus? Jesus? What? Holy Ghost! Jesus says, Chill. Chill out, guys. Don't freak out. Take a deep breath. Uh, It is me. And I'm here in flesh and blood. I'm not a ghost. You can touch my hands if you want. You can see the scars. And if you still don't believe, um, give me some food. I'm hungry. It's kind of been a long weekend. And also, ghosts don't really uh, get hungry. 
and, or digest their food. I, I'm here with you guys. And he spent time with them for the next many, many days until he was ascended into heaven uh, and reunited with his father. This experience with Jesus changed everything for those disciples. Fifty days later on Pentecost, they would join God to launch a global mission to share with the world what they had seen. That they had seen Jesus raised from the dead with their very eyes. One of those people was Paul. Though he encountered the risen Jesus after those first disciples did, it still changed him like it changed them. He ended up traveling all over the world, even more so than those early disciples, sharing the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, In fact, did you notice in that wonderful reading of 1 Corinthians 15, how resurrection dominated the way that Paul talked about the gospel? So the gospel has to do with the death of Christ according to the scriptures and the burial because he really was dead for Paul. And then the resurrection according to the same scriptures. He was raised to life. And then he goes to say, to take very careful pains to say he was seen by Peter. He was seen by the twelve. He was seen by 500 others, many of whom are still alive. So they can testify. You can go and argue with them if you want. But they saw him. He was seen by James. He was seen by all the apostles. And then he was seen by me, Paul. Four times he uses that word, appeared, or was seen by, to describe these six different encounters. The gospel for Paul is that Jesus died, he was buried, and he was resurrected. He was resurrected. He really was resurrected. Did I mention Jesus was resurrected? And by resurrected, Paul means as the gospel stories suggest, bodily resurrection. Amen. Yeah? Somebody coming back to life in their body that was dead. Which was very why, why the gospel writers took very great pains to let people know this was not an apparition. No. Right? This was not a ghost. No. This was a human being with a transformed body showing up again on earth. This was Jesus resurrected. He wasn't merely resuscitated. They used this particular word they did, resurrection, because Jesus was dead like for days. And then God breathed the breath of life back in him. In this, God affirms the goodness of creation and of our bodies. They're not just something to be discarded when we get to go to heaven and fly away someday. Um, That would have been a surprising thought. To the Greeks in Corinth, who he's writing to. Because any old non-Christian, pagan, you know, platonic kind of person would have very much assumed there's something, there's life after death. In some disembodied soul kind of state. But Paul is saying something very different. He's saying, no, it's, it's not just life after death. It's life after life after death. It is bodily resurrection, embodied resurrection after death. Which is why Paul is talking about those who, weren't, who couldn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. That was a foreign idea for the Greeks in Corinth. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and following, 15, 12 and following, Without the resurrection of Jesus, the gospel is useless 
and so is our faith. Without the resurrection of Jesus, our faith is foolishness and we're still in our sins. Without the resurrection of Jesus, the death of Jesus loses its significance. Otherwise, Jesus is only pretty remarkable, only a remarkable teacher and healer and martyr. So, okay, you thought I was getting thick. Um, I'm going to get a little thicker before I kind of bring it down out of the clouds again. So uh, hang in there with me because this is I get the most excited about this part, because if this is really true, guys, this is going to sing. Just hang with me. Why is resurrection so important for Paul? Faithful Jewish folk for centuries had expected that humanity's time on earth would play out in two stages. Stage number one is the present evil age. It's the age that we find ourselves full of brokenness and sin and pain and suffering. Um, It's Holy Saturday, if you will. Stage two, they called the age to come. That's when God would set things right, banish sin and death, bring restoration and renewal, and live in peace with His people. That's when the resurrection of the dead happened. So Jesus' phrase in John, when Jesus says, uh, when Jesus says eternal life, eternal literally means of the ages. Life of the ages. Life of the age to come. He's, he's locking in to this two, two-stage tradition. Um, what none of the disciples expected and why they were so surprised that Jesus was resurrected in the flesh, in his body, was because they, they thought that when stage two came, it would be for everybody. Right? When people raise back from the dead, it's going to be a wholesale uh, resurrection of the people of God. They did not expect for a single dude, a Messiah, to be raised first from the dead, which is why they kind of tripped out. They didn't know that there would be part A and part B of this stage two, the age to come. So what's happening in the resurrection is like if, if the age, the present evil age is this veil of darkness, um, the, the resurrection of Jesus is like a ray of light that breaks in and through the present evil age, bringing in the age to come. He is, uh, as Paul says, he's the first fruits. Like when you're expecting at harvest time, uh, this harvest of crops and you get the first crops and it gives you confidence. Hey, there's more coming where that came from, right? Or when you see the preview of a movie to kind of bring it into our world a little bit. You see the preview of a movie you're really excited about. And you're like, ooh, I can't wait to see that when it comes in full. That's the resurrection of Jesus. Or for you readers, when you read the introduction of an amazing novel. And it, it just it tantalizes you about the rest of the book that it's going to come. That is the way Jesus' resurrection operates in the age to come. It is the future arriving in the present. And nobody expected for that to happen. Jesus was raised from the dead as a signal of hope that all of us who belong to Jesus and creation with us will one day be raised from sin and death as well. We'll be raised with new bodies just like Jesus was. 
Now get this. For Paul and for the Christians throughout the ages, the resurrection of Jesus establishes him not only as the Messiah of the Jewish people, but as king of the whole world. When Jesus ascends to heaven, he ascends to the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 27 in chapter 15, God has put everything under Jesus' feet, under his authority, and he is currently reigning until all dominion, all authority and power that stand against the kingdom of God are defeated. He currently reigns right now in the heavenly realms. Even as he hosts us around this table, he reigns over all things, and he will until he puts all enemies under his feet. The last enemy is death. You know how we know that death gets defeated? Jesus raises everybody that belongs to him to new life, thus defeating death, thus breaking the the curse and the, the oppression of death for good. In Texas, we might say Jesus is alive, y'all, and he's going to make us alive, too. Or in the words of my son, Ryan, when he wins a game of Fortnite on the Xbox. Let's go! Let's go! Woo! Let's go! I mean, you got to get excited about that. What does this resurrection news mean for us today as followers of Jesus? What does it mean for you all sitting here, for us sitting here together? What is this news? Where is it hitting you today? What's the import for you? What does this mean for where we're sitting at this point in history? What does it mean for us as followers of Jesus today? Yes. 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 Thank you. Tells me that what we do right here, right now, matters. Yes. Y'all are preaching it for me. Come on. Yes. During that song, Is He Worthy? I kept thinking about the first and second commandment. Uh, even God before me, not spent out down any idols. And our world is full of idols. You know, and, and we're not worshiping all. We're not worshiping good. We're not worshiping, you know, the Almighty Dollar. We're worshiping. We know this Jesus because He walked among us, and it is right to worship Him. And He's not a historical figure like Allah and like Buddha. You know, He is risen. He is to the right hand. We hear somehow magically, mystically, amazingly, are worshiping Him, and we go home in our bedrooms and bathrooms and kitchens. With him. Also. Mm-hmm. Not exclusive to the Twitter body. But it's the right thing. It's the God thing. It's the righteous thing. God is with that. He's not with worshiping idols. Mm-hmm. And there's a few idols in our contemporary culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is the, as much as the cross is the scandal of Christianity, the resurrection is too. I mean, it is crazy. 
for someone to come back from the dead and not to die, but to to ascend, to be in the heavenly realms with God. Um, that is that is a scandalous claim. But that is that those two claims of death and shame and resurrection and new life. That's the heart of the story. Right. That is the scandalous claim of the cross and the tomb. Yeah. That's, that's part of it being audacious for us to even think. Because even back then, everyone knew if you die, you stay dead. Dead yeah. people don't rise up. There right. were primitive idiots that did not know that dead people don't rise up. Yep. I mean, even from the very beginning, people knew when you die, you die. Yep. You stay so it's crazy to even think. Yeah. Man? I don't know if this is explicitly taught when I was a kid, but I always thought um, in heaven, whatever it is, sort of all the bad stuff is erased. Like, it's me, but all the bad stuff is gone. Mm-hmm. I'm constantly uh, struck and shocked that Jesus bears the scars. Mm-hmm. Uh, the resurrected body bears the scars. Uh-huh. There's something really comforting for me to know that, like, all the pain and brokenness yeah. that I've experienced, yeah. that we've experienced, it's made of part of who we are. It's not a race. Yeah. It's healed. Yeah. It's made new. It's made right. Oh, that's really uh, good. There's something really comforting about that. That the brokenness isn't a race. It's, it's redeeming. It's yes. Healed. Yeah, it's, it's not It's not for naught. Um, it is. It, it's um, God is crafty, right? He, he, he makes it part of our story and redeems it. It's who we are. And we, uh, that's really good. We go with that. Even Jesus has scars. That's significant. Yeah. Terry. I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but I don't know how many of y'all know Rick and Beverly Ross. He's a preacher in Decatur. Uh-huh. And, and you were going to tell a story that I'm going to tell. Just Are you really? I'm going to talk about Rick and Beverly Okay. I just remember, um, I'm friends with her on Facebook, and I just remember that, um, you know, I remember her saying that she asked him how they were going to get through it when, her, when their daughter died. Yeah. And he said that she knew him. Yep. And that's what they live by, is that hope that the tomb is in. Yep, that's right. Word. That's the exact story I was going to tell. Sorry. No, it's okay. I mean, the Spirit of God is at the Word of Honor. Right? Um, the guy who wrote the Is He Worthy Con, he, he talks about you as a sower, you know, and then you talk about yourself as a sower. Uh-huh. And he said that, you know, you look at, you told stories over and over about these dying and coming back, mm-hmm. and we think, well, we're not like a seed. Let me sum up what all of you have said so well already. And I was hoping that would happen. That's why I asked that question. Um, Four implications. I was at three for a while, but I I just can't do the three-point preacher thing. So I had to think of a fourth one. Um, What's that? Uh, Kind of, yeah. I'm getting there, yeah. (laughs) So I have four and a poem. It's not a poem. Um, The first one is um, we should probably celebrate... 
at least a little bit, because Jesus was raised from the dead, and those who belong to Jesus will be raised too. Like, that's a pretty big deal. It's funny to me, and Paul and I were talking about this this week, we've got 40 days for Lent, and for most Christians, we're like, oh yeah, Lent, this is a great new holiday, and um, remember my sin, and um, you know, I'm, I'm confession, and then we get to Easter, and it's like one day. Alright, resurrection, woohoo! Did you know, in the Christian calendar, Eastertide is 50 days. It's from Easter Sunday to Pentecost. That's a big chunk, right? We need to celebrate. This needs to be a season of celebration for us. And that's not to wipe away the darkness in the world, but it is to hold on to the anchor of our hope. That God is making things new. And we want to hang our hats on that. Um, Second, um, we can live holy lives in this present evil age. Um, And it's worth it to do that. Because Jesus was raised from the dead. And those of us who belong to Jesus will be raised too. Paul says, if the dead aren't raised, let's be Epicureans. Let's eat and live and drink it up. Live it up today. Because tomorrow we die. Paul says, no, that's that's silliness. Sober up, get back in your right mind, stop sinning, and be the people God is calling you to be. Live now into the age to come in the way we interact with people. The third implication, living with hope amidst the darkness and death is possible because Jesus was raised from the dead and those of us who belong to Jesus will be raised too. It's possible to live with hope even amidst the death and the darkness. And that's when I was going to tell the story about Beverly and um, Rick and Rick saying to Beverly, the tomb is empty. That's that's what we hold on to even in the depths of uh, extraordinarily difficult loss, losing their 30-something-year-old daughter to sepsis unexpectedly. The tomb is empty. Um, finally, suffering for the gospel is worth it because Jesus was raised for the dead and those who belong to Jesus are raised too. Paul says, if Jesus wasn't raised, it wasn't worth it that I faced death every day. It wasn't worth it that I fought wild beasts. He fought wild beasts for the sake of the gospel, right? Paul, Paul did not expect to have his best life now. Paul expected to suffer for the gospel. And it was worth it to Paul because of the resurrection. Paul says at the end of chapter 15, Stand firm, let nothing move you, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I'll close with one of my favorite quotes from N.T. Wright. I've stared at it for a long time on my wall um, in his book, Surprised by Hope. And it riffs off these very words. It's not a poem, but it's close, close enough, right? It's N.T. Wright. It's poetic, right? Um, And I just want to speak this over you. As you live your life this week, as you serve the Lord, as you try to find your way in the darkness of the present evil age, and you try to find the ray of hope that breaks in, um, that is resurrection. That is Jesus, King over all. I, I 
want to encourage you with this. What you do in the Lord is not in vain. You are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to fall over a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown into the fire. You are not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up by a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, you are accomplishing something which will become in due course part of God's new world. God's recreation of his wonderful world, which has begun with the resurrection of Jesus and continues mysteriously as God's people live in the risen Christ and in the power of his spirit, means that what we do in Christ and by the spirit in the present is not wasted. It will last all the way into God's new world. In fact, it will be enhanced there. Church, hear the good news. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. Imagine a world where Jesus is alive.